0: my youngest makes me watch uh, things like The Good Place, and uh, in turn, I was watching for the umpteenth time Homeland, and she was watching. and. Uh, I'm trying to cover her eyes at bad stuff. I'm trying to explain statecraft and spycraft and the tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union and Afghanistan. But I had this epiphany that Saul, the character played by Mandy Patinkin, would be a good voice for Benjamin Franklin, the subject of a few films back. And it was, and he is the greatest. And so, you know, it's all symbiotic.
1: Ken Burns is America's history teacher. Over nearly 50 years of making documentary films, Burns has defined the genre of historical documentary and also become one of the most respected narrators of our shared national story. From the Civil War to the Roosevelts, from baseball to jazz, Ken Burns helps America understand itself by helping us all understand our past. When you think of a history documentary, you're probably thinking of a Ken Burns film. His newest project, The American Buffalo, is about the clash between American Western expansion and Native American sovereignty, and the importance of the buffalo to our shared American history. Burns has been nominated for 17 Emmys, won two Grammys, and has been nominated for two Oscars. And his work is especially important right now, at a moment when America's internal divisions are playing out in heated debates over how history is taught, whose perspectives should be included, and what real American history actually means. I'm Charlotte Alter, Senior Correspondent for Time, and this is Person of the Week. So as the daughter of a historian, I am just so excited to talk to you. I want to start by asking you, when you were a kid, when you were growing up, what was your relationship to history like? How did you first get interested in American history?
0: It's funny, I don't know a time when I wasn't interested in history, though it would not have risen to the level of my consciousness to Mm -hmm. say I was interested in history. My younger brother read fiction, I read the encyclopedia. I was interested in political stuff and current events and all of that. Our household was beset by tragedy. My mother got cancer when I was two, three years old. There wasn't a moment in my conscious life or memory where I don't remember thinking something really, really bad was about to happen at any time. And in fact, the reason why I do what I do is in part out of that tragedy because my dad never cried, not when she was sick, not when she died when I was 11, not at her terribly painful funeral. But the next year when I was 12, he and I would watch movies together and he started to cry at an old movie. The film was Odd Man Out by Sir Carol reed about the Irish Troubles of the nineteen teens and twenties, starring James Mason. And I suddenly realized that film offered him a kind of emotional safe harbor to express things that he couldn't really express. And I remember being twelve and going, I want to be a filmmaker and that meant being John Ford or Alfred Hitchcock or Howard hawks or whomever it was. But You know, just everything I did was towards becoming a filmmaker.
1: Wow. I'm wondering, how do you think it shaped your relationship to the past?
0: Well, it's interesting. My late father-in-law, who was an eminent psychologist, I went to him when I was 39 or 40 and in the middle of a crisis of some kind. And I said, "I, I seem to be keeping my mother alive. I can never remember the date. When she died, I could see April 28th approaching and then I could see it receding, but I was never present for that day, all Mm -hmm. through the end of my childhood and all through my adulthood. And he said, yeah, I bet you blew out your candles at every birthday wishing that she would come back. And I go, how did you know? And then he said, that's the magical thinking of an 11-year-old, but look what you do for a living. And I said, what? He said, you wake the dead. You make Abraham wow. Lincoln come alive. Who do you think you're really trying to wake up? So my mother and her relatively brief intersection with me and my life is seminal to who I am mm-hmm. and to this idea of waking the dead, not just merely the dry recitation of facts and dates and events so you'll do well on the test next Tuesday, but a kind of emotional archaeology that permits us to fuse together the meanings that accompany those dry dates and facts and events.
1: Wow. And so why documentaries? Why not feature films like the one that made your dad cry?
0: So I went to Hampshire College, which was a pretty new experimental college in Amherst, Massachusetts. When I arrived at Hampshire, fully intending to be a feature filmmaker, all of the teachers there were social documentary still photographers who sort of dabbled in documentary films. And they reminded me quite correctly that what is and what was is as dramatic as anything the human imagination makes up. And so I felt by the time I was twelve I knew what I wanted to be. By the time I was 18, I knew that would now be documentary, because it is as dramatic as anything. The laws of storytelling apply to me in the exact same ways they apply to Steven Spielberg and I've talked about it. But as he says, I can make stuff up and you can't, you know? Yeah. And so that's a wonderful limitation in a good way. I mean, I I, I revel in that thing.
1: So your first film, Brooklyn Bridge, came out in 1981, and it was then nominated for an Oscar for Best Documentary Feature. What do you think made this film about the construction of a bridge such a success?
0: Well, it was funny because when I was making it, I looked about 12 years old, and so people were always turning me down for funding, saying this child is trying to sell me the Brooklyn Bridge. I (laughs) thought, no. And for many years, I kept two big, gigantic three-ring binders on my desk, each filled with rejection letters. Many of them urged me strongly that a film about a bridge should be five or ten minutes long.
1: Hmm. And I
0: said, I'm going to have a real hard time, as my subsequent professional life bears out, keeping it to an hour. And we just told a story with still photographs. We animated those. We trusted the individual image to convey complex information. That's what I learned from Jerome Liebling and Elaine Mays at Hampshire College. And I treated those photographs as if I were a feature filmmaker with a master shot, a long shot, a medium shot, a close-up, a tilt, a pan, a reveal— insertive details, and I listened to them as well, where the troops tramping, where the cannons firing was the bat cracking, you know, what was going on in that that could animate the story of what I was trying to do and to sort of trust that that still photograph represented an arrested moment that had had a past and would have a future, so you could listen to the cart go by, even though you're looking at a cart that's static with a Mm -hmm. horse drawing it. All of that, really got me very excited about the possibility of storytelling in a new way. And I think Brooklyn Bridge represented that. I can remember the premiere, if that's what you can call it, let's put it in quotes, at the Brooklyn Museum in 1981. I put up and helped set up the folding chairs. I brought the projector. They brought one of those A.V. carts. And when it was over, the person at the museum said, well, why don't you answer questions? I was, first of all, deeply insulted that after spending five years of my life, all this blood, soot, and toil, anybody would want to ask a question. And then I realized I really loved that, answering mm. the questions. The first one was from a woman who said, where did you get those newsreels of the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge? And I said, well, ma'am, it was built between 1869 and 1883 before the advent of motion pictures. Those were still photographs. And she said, no, they aren't. Wow. And, And then I realized, you better shut up. You've won. Wow. So for her, somehow the use of that energetic and exploring camera eye over the landscape of a photograph made that a reality in which she thought there was movement. You could hear the gulls. You could hear the hammers, the distant shouts of men. You could hear the sound of the hemp rope hoisting up these big blocks of granite. You can hear the sort of early proto machines that would drive this stuff. There was shoveling. There was a whole layered sound track the way a feature film would have that were animating the photographs. And so I suddenly realized, let her win. Just sort of move on to the second question uh, because we'd won.
1: Yeah. I mean, well, this technique that you pioneered really is now what a lot of people think of when they think of historical documentaries. Right. And so can you tell me a little bit about what documentary filmmakers were doing before this, and how do you think this new technique changed people's approach to making documentaries?
0: You know, they were doing a lot of other things, and they're still doing them now, because this is a tiny little niche of doing historical stuff. But, you know, documentary is this huge, wide, kaleidoscopic rainbow of of styles that documentary doesn't really cover it at all. So in historical documentary, I think the films have had some influence and filmmakers have taken it in different directions and used it in different ways, and it's all pretty exciting. But, you know, it's got an honorable tradition of focusing on things in the moment and advocating a certain political point of view. You know, I was suggesting that maybe you could tell a complex story about a thing without necessarily having a political agenda, but having just a storytelling agenda. Hmm. The novelist Richard Powers says the best arguments in the world won't change a single person's point of view. The only thing that can do that is a good story. So what if you tried to tell good stories? What would that mean? You wouldn't be preaching just to the converted, as I fear many films do. You'd, you'd be trying to expand it and try to capture people on the edges of it and, and bring in marginalized people because the American history that I'm interested in is incredibly contradictory and incredibly inclusive. Yeah. And that's an important part of it. It isn't just a top-down, you know, sequence of presidential administrations punctuated by wars. It's a bottom-up story as well.
1: More with Ken Burns about his documentaries, creative process, and his thoughts on what makes America great when we come back. So decide which subjects to focus on? I mean, with all of American history at your fingertips, how do you decide this is what I'm going to focus on next?
0: Well, let me reverse engineer that for a little bit. If I were given a thousand years to live, I wouldn't run out of topics in American history. Mm -hmm. And the glib, direct answer to your question is they choose me. Hmm. That is to say, you're just drawn, there's no marketing, there's no focus group, there's no sort of, whoa, that will be good for the box office or whatever it is. It's just you're drawn to the subject the way you choose your best friend. And so you fall in love, and that's what happens. And it might be the Brooklyn Bridge, it might be the Shakers, the celibate religious sect, it might be Huey Long, it might be the Statue of Liberty. Those are the first four films that I worked on. It might be the Civil War, which was inspired by finishing a novel and then working for five and a half years to make a film about the entire Civil War, much to my father's sort of head-shaking amazement. He goes, oh, that's interesting. What part? And I said, all of it. And he just walked out of the room shaking his head like (laughs) my idiot son. And so it's that. I mean, some films, like my most recent film on the Buffalo, We've incubated for 30 years. Another friend of mine in Texas said, what about country music? And from that nanosecond on, I was doing country music. And so right. there's no one set process. They are self-initiated. People tell you ideas and sometimes you go, uh-huh, uh-huh. People say something and you take it and run with it. Not because of their idea, but because somehow every sort of sensor inside me goes off in a very positive way.
1: Hmm. So I'm glad you brought up the American buffalo. Um, Can you explain for listeners, what is the intimate relationship between Native American communities that you focus on in the film and the buffalo?
0: It's hard to say. We have to remember that what we call the continental United States had over 300 nations, individual Mm -hmm. groups of Native Americans that have their own cultures and their own languages and their own habits. But if You concentrate on the period, as we do mostly in the film, from 1800, around the time that Lewis and Clark began to explore the Louisiana Purchase. You begin to understand that many of the native tribes on the Great Plains, the buffalo is at the center of their religious ceremonies. It's at the center of their creation myths. It's at the center of rituals. It is an animal that sustains them in every regard, from the tail to the snout. Mm. Everything was used. Every part of this animal was used and revered. And then in the 19th century, the slaughter began. And after the Civil War, it took up at such an alarming rate when it was discovered that buffalo hides would drive the belts of the Industrial Revolution. And it is an incomprehensible thing that you can have the biggest land mammal in the United States now, our national mammal, go from 30, 35 million to, by the end of the 1880s, under a thousand, of which maybe only a couple dozen are wild and free. We just don't know. The rest are in private herds, on reservations, in zoos. And we really brought this magnificent animal to the brink. And a lot of it had to do not just with the market demands, but with the understanding that if you killed the buffalo, you would be also killing the Indian, and they would Mm -hmm. be more docile and would more easily move on to reservations. And so intertwined with the story of an animal is the whole history of us and what Manifest Destiny means, what it did and what it didn't do, how various Native peoples responded to not just circumstance, and not just reacted, but the collection of people who came together to help save the buffalo, some for the wrong reasons and others for really noble reasons. And you can't make this up.
1: So I want to go back to something you just mentioned, which is that sort of understanding the buffalo helps us understand the history of indigenous people in the United States.
0: And the history of the white Europeans who took over the continent. Right. Because The whole story is so connected and interconnected and it is such a complex tragedy and also at the end, the beginning of an uplift that you're really covering so much about who we are. It helps you jettison a lot about who we think we are, the mythology. Hmm. John Ford, who I wanted to be, said, you know, when faced with the fact or the legend, print the legend. Yeah. I went the other direction. I'm interested in printing the fact. And a lot of that legendary stuff can— go out of the way.
1: So to that point, one of the things that I've noticed as I've watched many of your films is that each of the subjects you choose and each of the stories you tell, ultimately you seem to be almost asking what makes America, America.
0: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. We ask this essentially seemingly simple question with each of the projects, who are we and what does an investigation of the past tell us about not only where we've been, that history, but where we are and where we may be going. This is the great gift of history. It's understanding and tolerating the contradictions and the undertow, along with the majesty of the stories, you know. And one of the projects we're working on is a history of reconstruction to try to provide a bulwark against the incredible damage done by the legendary, the mythology, the kind of superficial, conventional wisdom that we have about history and race is a huge question in America. And, you know, I'm not gonna put it all in Thomas Jefferson, but he writes our catechism, the second sentence of the Declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And you just stop right there and go, oops, this man owned hundreds of human beings, didn't see the contradiction, didn't see the hypocrisy, and didn't see fit in his lifetime to free any of those human beings. And so, in a way, ensured the civil war, which would take place fourscore and five years later, and continues to be a part of this American tension in really good ways. And so that's at our heart, and we've explored that. It's also about race when you deal with Native Americans in a in a really much more complex way because, the whole real estate of us, both us in the intimate way and us as the U.S., is theirs. You know, I'm an anthropologist, son. I grew up with a map of the United States on my bedroom wall that had the political divisions but didn't name the states. It just named the various Native American indigenous nations. And so I've been aware of this sort of Arikara and Mandan Hadatsa and Arapaho and Assiniboine, you know, these are the original Americans. And yet our history with these people who are as diverse as you could possibly imagine, different kinds of tribes, different kinds of living, agricultural, nomadic, all of this, we just say, sure, right? And then we move mm-hmm. on because it was good that we got this and now we're a continent, whatever. But the consequences, the cost has been enormous psychically not just for those people, but I would suggest for us. So I'm looking for ways in which these stories can be so complicated and be so multifaceted that they're not propaganda for a particular point of view. They're just saying, this is us. This is who we are. This is what we've done.
1: So in the last four or five years, there's been really a reckoning about how America handles race. But one thing I'm kind of curious about based on what you just said is, do you think that we are overdue for a reckoning with how America handles our recognition of indigenous peoples and Native Americans?
0: Oh, way, way overdue. But I would also suggest that the so-called reckoning about race didn't happen. We talked about it, but nothing happened. Nothing happened. There is a Christian-like forbearance and tolerance that has taken centuries for there to be even baby steps and even some of those baby steps have been eroded away with recent supreme court decisions with regard to the civil rights and the voting rights acts of 64 and 65 we need to have these reckonings but we live in a media culture where talking about it is the absolute substitute for actual action it happens right. among liberals it happens among conservatives it doesn't really matter it's a human kicking the can and so we've made progress it's minuscule and unacceptably small. And so you can add Native Americans to that mixture. We do not see each other as us. We always make of them of somebody that we don't like. And hmm. I realize as I've been talking that I've made, you know, films for f- nearly 50 years about the U.S., but I've also made films about us. All of the intimacy of that and we and our, and all of the majesty, complexity, contradiction, and controversy of the U.S. But the thing that I really learned most recently, I think it came when I was finishing and talking about country music, strangely enough, was that there's only us. There's no them.
1: So we are in this moment where American history is the site of a lot of our culture war. You know, on the one hand, you have the 1619 Project. On the other hand, you have, you know, conservatives stripping slavery out of the school curriculum in Florida. Why is the culture war being fought through the teaching of history? And what do you make of some conservative school boards trying to remove historical acknowledgement of our country's dark history of, of racism from school curriculums?
0: It's just the natural impulse of authoritarianism to do that. It makes Hmm. things simpler to explain when, in fact, nothing on this earth is simple to explain. And so it's going to always degrade when people like that think you can just keep it the way it is. It's like a gated community. It's there to provide people with some superficial reassurance that nobody can get in, but then can you actually get out? Are you able to actually see beyond that? And so there's great dangers. It's, it's always been the case. I mean, we talk about the Soviet examples where they're editing people out of a photograph. Somebody all of a sudden doesn't exist anymore. This is incredibly familiar to anyone who studies history. And so all you need to do is push back. And so, you know it's going to be okay. We're going to get through it. We've been through periods that are far worse than this, and we have a system that for all of its flaws and all of its blindnesses and all of the tragic compromises necessary for its creation, nevertheless, is one of the best forces in the history of the world. And having been someone who spent their life being not critical, but just trying to be honest about what happened, I would lay the United States for all its glaring horrific mistakes up against any institution in the history of humankind and defy you to come up with a better record.
1: So some people believe that to acknowledge the contradictions and the inequities in our history is to somehow, you know, be critical of America or say that America is a bad place. So help me understand how you can look at Um, Look and love. Our history and and our present and still believe that America is the best nation in the world. Well,
0: look, we gave the world the Declaration of Independence. We gave the world the Constitution. We gave the world the Bill of Rights. We gave the world the Land-Grant College Act national parks social security the man on the moon and people can argue and they did when they were happening and they do now about these things but they are in the plus column of things we've done and my list was so abbreviated i mean this is just a short short list of our accomplishments and that's an important thing to understand as we turn a critical eye because if you think that the united states is exceptional you have to be as rigorously self-critical as anyone on earth, more than our enemies, more than our friends. It's relentless study. And for the United States, that relentless study is called open and honest investigation of the past. And I think we're in the greatest threat ever. The first three threats, the Civil War, the Depression, and the Second World War, free and fair elections, peaceful transfer of power, independence of the judiciary, were not in question. They weren't. And in the current crisis, they are. And so we cannot sugarcoat this and say that in some ways this is not a fraught an existential moment. But at the same time, we also know who we are.
1: So on that note, people keep talking about how this moment is unprecedented, and it is in a lot of ways. But what do you think is the closest historical parallel to the moment that we're in right now?
0: Well, there's none. You know, everybody talks about history repeating itself. It never, ever has. Or we're condemned to repeat what we don't remember. Nice, lovely, but not true. Mark Twain is supposed to have said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. That makes the most sense to me. Mm -hmm. So we see patterns. We hear echoes. They're rhymes. And so we have lots of incidences where it has been bad. None of them are exactly the same because it doesn't repeat Mm -hmm. itself. You know, historians, you'll find are a strangely optimistic group. And even when in the last few years my optimism sort of wavered, I still felt, oh, it'll be okay. You know, I have friends who were looking to get, you know, another passport to some place. And I thought, you know, I just want to be here uh, for it and to try to make this republic better by telling good stories, not polemically engage, but narratively engage, And that's where I think... We do it. Sometimes stories change things fundamentally. Sometimes stories change things at the margin, but they always usually do something.
1: Wow. Well, Ken, thank you so much for all the films you've made and continue to make about the forces that have shaped this country, which I've so enjoyed talking to you about. Um, Now we want to just take one moment to hear about kind of the everyday things that shape you in a segment that we like to call The Last Time. So it's sort of like rapid fire...
0: I'm not sure for a guy who makes, you know, (laughs) 10-part, 18-hour films whether you'll get rapid fire, but go ahead.
1: When is the last time you totally failed at a New York Times crossword puzzle?
0: Ooh, years ago. I mean, I do it seven days a week. So 25 years ago, I'm addicted to the New York Times crossword puzzle. Every day I have to do it.
1: And you don't fail at it. You get it every time.
0: I, I, you know, sometimes you burn a lot of brain cells, but you eventually, sometimes you put it down and you swear at it, you know? Sometimes you cheat yeah. and look up what the f- 15th cast member was on some TV show you never saw to get the strange first name. But, you know, yeah. We basically finish it.
1: When's the last time you were recognized by a stranger?
0: Uh, Just the other day in an airport when I was coming back from the Telluride Film Festival. Some guy came up and said, you're a national treasure. And my 12-year-old looked at me and said, hey, Dad, you're a national treasure. Could you get me something to eat?
1: (laughs) When's the last time you built something yourself? Oh, God.
0: Uh, I have no idea. I don't know, we've done some school projects that taken a little bit of construction, but I, my father, who was an anthropologist, was also a great carpenter, and I, I think I was daunted entirely by his great skill. I wish I had inherited it.
1: When is the last time you made a dad joke? Oh
0: God, probably this morning. And my, I mean, my daughters, all four of them—Sarah, Lily, Olivia, and Willa—are in near perpetual eye rolling moments all the time. And every once in a while, you say something, and they go, "Dad, that was actually funny," but the way they say it means it's not that funny. <laughs>
1: Wonderful. Listen, Ken, I so appreciate you making time to speak with me. I have learned so much from your work. I've learned so much from this conversation, and I just really appreciate you being here with us. Oh, it's
0: been my pleasure. I've really enjoyed our conversation.
1: Ken Burns' new documentary, The American Buffalo, premieres on PBS on October 16th. Thank you so much for listening to Person of the Week. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you. So send your tips or thoughts on our show to personoftheweek at time.com. I'm Charlotte Alter. See you next week. Person of the Week is hosted by Charlotte Alter. It's produced by Nina Bisbano and India Witkin. Our senior producer is Ursula Summer. Our story editor is Katie Feather. This episode was mixed by Cedric Wilson. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Joseph Frischmith is our fact checker. Person of the Week is a co-production of Time Studios and Sugar 23. At Time, our executive producers are Mike Beck and Sam Jacobs. At Sugar 23, our executive producers are Mike Mayer, Michael Sugar, and Liam Billingham. Sasha Mathias is the head of audio at Time. You can find us online at time.com slash person of the week and wherever you get your podcasts.